Alright, I want to welcome everyone here this morning. If you have your Bibles today, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And I want you to join me. We're going to ask God to bless the preaching of His Word today. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for allowing us as a church to sing Your praise, Lord. It's a beautiful thing, God, and we desire to do that, Lord. We desire to give you the glory that is due your name. And more than anything else, God, we desire to glorify Christ for his mercy. And we do that, Lord. It's a wonderful thing, God, what you have done for us. You have cast away our sins and you have placed them all upon Christ for every believer in this room and all of our sins were given to him and all of his righteousness is given to us, Lord. And we are clean before you today, the holy, holy, holy God. And yet you have intervened for us, Lord. You're a God of power, a God of matchless might and authority. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. And our, on our behalf, Lord, you have uttered those words. It is finished. You have finished the work, Lord. You finished it forever. You ascended to the right hand of the Father and you sat down. And we worship you today as the Christ who has put away our sin. And we desire as your people, Lord, to gather around your word today and to obey you, God. To submit to you, Lord. To come to you for encouragement, God. And that's what we ask for today, Lord. That you would give us life according to your word. That you would speak to your church through the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our prayer today. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are about to enter into a section of Acts together as a local church. And Acts 13 and Acts 14 is a famous section in the book of Acts. Um, it's a unit that goes together and it's referred to. Uh, maybe you've seen this in the back of your Bible and those maps that are in the back of your Bible. It's referred to as the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. It's a significant moment in church history. Okay. For this reason. This is the first time. That a cross cultural missions team. Is sent out from a local church. To target church planning. Among the Gentiles. And so the mission has been going on. In a sporadic way. Um, through less than normal things. Like. Believers being spread by persecution and preaching the gospel as they go. Peter seeing sheets fall from heaven and going to preach the gospel to Cornelius. And things are beginning to settle into a more normative pattern of missions. Normative. This is more of the type things that we see happen over and over again in the book of Acts and throughout church history. And so that's really important for us. This first missionary journey is going to lay down a paradigm for us of this is going to give us a picture of what a missional local church looks like. It's going to give us a picture of how a local church is to send out missionaries. 
So not everything in this passage today or in these two chapters is what we would call prescriptive in the sense that it repeats itself over and over again in church history. But the majority of this is. This is how missionaries are to be sent from local churches. This is what missionaries are sent to do from local churches. So there's much for us to learn here. Okay, Much for us to learn. There's an immediate practicality to the things we're going to see in God's word this morning. Let's turn to Acts 13 and let's read our text together, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God to his church today. He says, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But, but Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had, what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. So we have a lot to cover, so I want us to jump right in under this heading, um, this first heading this morning. I want us to begin to unpack what it looks like for a local church to send Missionaries, what's the process look like? What are we supposed to be doing as Grace Community Church when it when it comes to the nations? And we're going to see that process unfold for us in the first four verses of Acts 13. Before we do that, I want to just give us a few reminders of the local church that we're dealing with. Okay, this church at Antioch. And a couple of reminders I want us to come into this with is we're talking about um, a church that's going to serve as probably the most missional church ever in church history. This is the church where the spark happened 
that caused the gospel explosion throughout the whole Roman Empire. This is the very beginning, okay? And so we're going to lean in and, and just get a few glimpses of this church. And one thing that we know about this church is that this is an ethnically diverse church. That is the design for the church of Jesus Christ, for the body of Christ. And we know that they are ethnically diverse because previously in the book of Acts, if you remember back in Acts 11, this was the place where we read that phrase in Acts 11 that not only was the gospel preached to Jews in Antioch, but it says to the Hellenists also, to the Greeks also. And so think about how uh, unique this church is in redemptive history that for the first time in history, Jews and Gentiles are worshiping the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, in the same local church, in the same body of Christ. This is an ethnically diverse church. And then not only that, we're told in verse one, not just the congregation is ethnically diverse. We're told the leadership of this church has tremendous ethnic diversity. Pay close attention as we roll through these five names given to us. These are the leaders of the church in Antioch. First, we have Barnabas. That's a familiar name to us. We're going to talk more about him in a minute. But earlier in the book of Acts, we're told where Barnabas is from. It's Cyprus. That's his hometown. This is the island that they're going to land on in just a moment. So we have a man from Cyprus. And then we jump to number two. Um, Barnabas to, to a man who was Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, most likely this man was from Africa because his name, that, that, that title attached to his name, it means black. So, so we have a man from Cyprus in leadership. And then most likely we have an African in leadership in the same local church. Let's keep going. Next, it jumps to a man named Lucius, and it says he's from Cyrene. That's North Africa. That's ancient. Uh, that's an ancient city that's in modern-day North Africa. So they're coming from all over the place, and they're gathering in these leadership roles. And then we see Menaean. We're told that he's a lifelong friend of Herod, and that means that he's from Judea in Israel. And then finally, we come to this man named Saul. We'll talk more about him in a minute. But we know also from the rest of the New Testament that this man is from Tarsus. So think about this. They are all over the map from different states, different peoples. There's all kind of languages and ethnicities happening in this church. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit gives a tremendous gift to this church. And that's what leadership is. Ephesians chapter 4. They're gifts to the church from the ascended Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gifts this church with tremendous ethnic diversity in the church of Antioch. And I just want to encourage us with that. And here's, here's, here, there's two different ways I want to encourage us to that regard. Is this is what the gospel does. The gospel in and of itself has the power to bring all peoples into one body. The seed of the gospel has that power. Not the structures and ideas of men. And one of the things that I find tremendously encouraging in this picture of this diverse church in Antioch is this is before any of the modern day ethnic gurus and ethnicity experts show up on the scene. Of if you really want to know how to have a diverse church, this is the things you need to know. This is the ideology and the history that you need to know. None of that yet. 
No ethnicity gurus, no ethnicity specialists. You just have tremendous ethnic diversity, and it's a gift from the Holy Spirit to the church. And we see him doing this is a beautiful diversity that the Spirit has given this local church in Antioch. And we need to be reminded, how did that get created? Not by the strategies of men, not by the ideas of men. But by the gospel of Jesus Christ, from the very beginning, it began to gather all nations in one body. So we have an extremely diverse church. Okay? The gospel is calling all peoples into this local church. And what we're about to find out is that the Holy Spirit's going to say, this is not just about y'all and what's going on here. There's some work to be done outside of this place. Set them apart to this work. That I've called. So we're going to zone in on this church at Antioch and their role in sending missionaries. They are responsible for sending Barnabas and Saul. So let's talk about what's the role of the church in sending missionaries. Let's start here. Let's describe what the role of the church is not. Okay? And then that'll help us understand what the role of the church is as it regards to missions. And so what we see described here is that the role of the local church is not, we're not the initiators of cross-cultural missions. The Holy Spirit is. That's a really important thing. The, the local church plays an important role, but it's supplemental to and secondary to the call of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see laid out for us in this text. The Spirit initiates the call to the nations. And we know that, right, especially in Saul's life, because this is not the first time that we hear about Saul going to the nations. In fact, if we were paying attention when we when we uh, studied through Saul's conversion in Acts chapter nine, as soon as the man was converted, he was appointed. He was called. He was marked off as a missionary to the nations. And so this is what Jesus said about him. Back in Acts chapter 9, which New Testament scholars tell us that as many as 10 years or more could have happened between Acts 9 and Acts 13. So this is what Jesus says about Saul in Acts 9 verse 15. He said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So the church is about to send them out. They're about to be in tremendous partnership with these missionaries. But the Spirit calls these men. The Spirit initiates. And we see that explicitly um, in verse, verse 2. Verse, yeah, verse 2. Look at how that's worded in verse 2. The word that the Holy Spirit gave the church is, your role is this, set apart. My role is those who, whom I have called to the work. And so that's the process that we see happening. And the role of the local church is to set apart whom the Holy Spirit has called to the work of missions. Now, are you saying that the, the local church's role really, really doesn't matter? And, and it's good if we have you know, the local church, but it's really all about the Spirit's call? No, no, no. Look at how these things are married together in the text. Um, what we see here is that the Holy Spirit sends missionaries, no doubt. But look at what the text says. He does it through the church. The Spirit sends missionaries through 
the local church, through the local church. Notice in verse 3, we are told that the church sends out these two laborers. That's what it says. They're sent out by the church. And then you're reading Acts 13, and you read the very next verse, and his very next words are this. And being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And you're scratching your head, and you're thinking, man, is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? I mean, did the church send them out, or did the Spirit send them out? Can you make up your mind? Can we figure this out? Who sent out these men? And what we tend to divorce, uh, the Spirit and the church, the book of Acts, marries them together. That the Holy Spirit sends missionaries through the local church. And so the local church's role is not only as important, but I would argue it's absolutely necessary when we think about cross-cultural missions and planning the gospel in unreached people groups. Um, and this is a reminder that we need. Okay? In our day, in our generation, uh, if you think about the last uh, 50 years, there has been tremendous, explosive growth and great commission and mission and sending and, and missional enterprise and a lot of activity. But yet at the same time, there's been a tremendous um, explosion of the parachurch and the secondary supplemental ministries that are to go alongside church planting. And we need that. We need this reminder. Holy Spirit sends missionaries through the church because we live in an individualistic, autonomous culture. And that stuff seeps into the way that we think about serving Jesus. And so this is really, really common. Okay, Unfortunately, as, it, as we think about missionaries and missions, that way too often... Those things are divorced from and disconnected from the local church. And we need to be reminded from the book of Acts that they go together. And I will give you two ways to just, to just consider this of how we see that disconnect happen very often. And the first is on the front end. Okay? On the front end. The New Testament does not give any individual authority for any individual follower of Jesus Christ to, to proclaim themselves any, any ministry or any mission. Okay, The pattern that we see over and over again in the New Testament is the church lays hands on laborers and sends them to the work. And so Acts 13 is a rebuke to self-appointed men and women. Men and women who have not had the local church come beside them and affirm them in the work and send them out to the work. And so the new, you'll search in vain for this in the New Testament, for this idea of um, this lone ranger missionary. You cannot find that. Even if you're the apostle Paul in the New Testament, you have somebody with you and you're being sent out from the church at Antioch. So there's no place for, you could call it missionary cowboys, okay? Uh, just this idea of, just me and Jesus, and I'm going to do what Jesus says. God did not make Christians like that. He dropped them in the midst of a body. And the body of Christ, the church of Jesus, has a role to play in how you think about your call and your service to Jesus. And so oftentimes, that disconnect happens on the front end from missions and the local church. But I also want you to know that the disconnect happens on the back end from missions, missionaries, and the local church. And so... It's, it's, it's all too common to see 
when missionaries hit the ground, that all kinds of different activity can be happening that's disconnected from local church and church planning. And we need to be aware of that. That there's a lot of good things that we can do in Jesus' name that are never intended to be the main thing. And I'll give you some examples of that. There are really good works to be involved in, to relocate yourself among the nations, to be involved in medical missions, or teaching English as a second language, or relocating yourself and running an orphanage. But what we're seeing here is that's not the mission. Those are really good things, and they're supplemental to the mission of the church of Jesus. But the mission is to plant churches where there are no churches. And so there always has to be a connection to not only sent from the church, but also sent to plant churches. It's married to the church from beginning to end. The Holy Spirit sends missionaries through the local church. Now, I want to pause right here, and we've been spending a few uh, weeks in a row, and this has been a, a heavy thing that's come to this, to this church uh, through the book of Acts, this call to the nations of asking God to, to, to use us as a church and then bringing our life before God as a blank check of, Lord, whatever you command me, I will do. Wherever you send me, I will go. And so as you thought through these things in your life, and if you are someone who, who is wrestling through and discerning a call of Lord Jesus, what would you have me to do with my life? I think this text is tremendously helpful to you, and I want to give you at least three ways. So if that's you, if you're wrestling through, am I called? Am I called to serve you, Lord Jesus? Am I called to the nations? Let me give you Three, three glimpses in this text that I think would be really helpful for you as you process through that as a disciple of Jesus. The first is this. This is really backwards to the way that we think. Um, but I want you to notice that these men, they're called to a work and they're not called to a place. Okay, notice that. Verse 3. The Holy Spirit sets them all apart for a work. We have no indication. Okay, The Spirit hasn't made it known yet specific geographic areas where he would have them to go. That stuff comes later. And isn't that backwards of our, our way of thinking? And so often we're infatuated with the where do I live instead of the what do I do. Okay. And this is just a healthy corrective that they're called to a work more than to a place. And this is this is tremendously encouraging to me. And I pray it's tremendously encouraging to you because it gives clarity. If you're if you're fighting to discern that call, it tells you what you need to be doing. It tells you what you need to be spinning your wheels about and spinning your energy on that. You need to give yourself to training for the work. And stop worrying about where that work's going to happen. That comes in time, but the Spirit calls you to a work, not necessarily to a place. Number two, my encouragement to you would be, you know, if you feel this stirring in your heart to serve Jesus in ministry, in cross-cultural missions, my encouragement to you from Acts 13 is to submit that call to the local church. Submit that call 
to the local church. And so think with me for just a moment. Okay. When the Holy Spirit calls someone to serve as a missionary, every single time the Holy Spirit qualifies that person to serve as a missionary. In other words, the call never comes without the, qualifi without the qualifications. And so this is why God has given you and me the local church. Okay? That we need brothers and sisters to come alongside of us to affirm that work that the Spirit's doing in our life. And there's at least two ways that the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, speaks about those qualifications. And they're mainly character. They're mainly godly character. That the types of men and women that the Spirit sends to serve Him among the nations, they're godly men and women. Okay? And so there's a danger that we could feel these stirrings and this provoking and disconnect it from the local church. And we disconnect ourselves from people that may see some things about us that need some work. Some, some, some time needs to happen. Some maturity needs to happen in the Christian life before we take on that leadership role. So character is a huge issue. And the local church affirms godly character. They affirm it. And not only that, missionaries are to be equipped to do the work. Okay, This is not haphazard of, yeah, I really want to do this. I've never done it. I don't know, you know much about it, but the Spirit's called me and we'll just figure it out when we get there. No, you have to be, you have to be equipped to, to, do, to do the work of ministry. And that equipping comes through the local church. And so I want to encourage you to submit your call to the local church and test your gifts in the local church. Test your gifts in the local church. These men, you remember in Acts 11, Barnabas and Saul are preaching God's word in Antioch. And it says for a year, they are busy preaching the word of the Lord. Many people are being gathered. Many people are believing. So these are not newbies in any way to teaching God's word or to serving Jesus. They're, they're tested men. Okay? And I think that's a pattern for us to consider that their gifts were tested in the local church before they were sent to serve among the unreached. So brothers and sisters, submit your call to the local church. Christ has given you a gift in the form of the local church. Last encouragement. If you're wrestling through that, am I called? Should I go? How should I spend my life? What should I do? Last encouragement I want to give you here before we move on is to notice that the Holy Spirit sends teams. Sends teams. Is that not tremendously encouraging to you? That even if you're the Apostle Paul, he doesn't just say, go do it by yourself. He sends them out with Barnabas. And we come down to verse 5 and we see another man joins them named John. Other places in the New Testament, we know this John Mark. And it calls him a helper. And so we see this team gathering. This is the work of the Spirit. Not only are they sent from the church, but they're sent as a team. As a team. And if we read verse 5 seriously, we will understand that even the New Testament paradigm gives a place for what is called helpers on cross-cultural uh, missions teams. That the Holy Spirit said that about him. He was a helper. And so as those teams gather together, you have a role for leadership 
and you have a role for helper. And we need to embrace both of those roles as ascending church, as Grace Community Church, as we send teams to do the work of Jesus among the nations. We want to send teams like this. We want to send leaders that are going to gather those local churches. They're going to care. They're going to provide the primary leadership on that missions team. But we also want to send helpers to help those leaders do the work of ministry. And so if you're wrestling through that, am I called? What should I do? Maybe God is calling you to leadership. Maybe he is. Maybe he is. Submit that call to the local church. Have those gifts tested. But have you considered this? Maybe God is calling you to be a helper. Maybe God is calling you to join yourself to a cross-cultural church planning team and take on the role of a helper. And what a beautiful way to serve the Lord Jesus among the nations. It's a God-ordained role. In the mission of the church, this role of helper. And I think that many of us need to get serious about this. Uh, because we have a unique thing in, in our generation um, that's really unique. And how easy it is to relocate to many different places of the world. And many of us are, are sitting in the middle of jobs that we can pick up and do in lots of different places on planet earth. And so many of us need need to get really serious about considering should we do the same job that we're doing right now except relocated among the unreached of the earth and, and hook ourselves into a church planning team seeking to plant a church among the unreached for the praise of Jesus Christ. This is this is something that we need to submit before the Lord. Lord would you have me do that? Would you have me to be a helper? Like Mark in verse 5. Alright, we'll transition. So this is a little bit about how, how missionaries are sent. What kinds of things that we need to think about. What kinds of things that we need to do. And then it gives us some encouragement for the rest of the, the text this morning. Of here's the types of things that we can expect and trust and pray for and ask. As, as the local church that sends out servants of Jesus. And this is a great encouragement to us as we see some of the fruit and the effects of sending missionaries from a local church. Look at verse 4. Paul and Barnabas are sent out from church at Antioch and they come to this port city that's referred to as Seleucia. So this is just a, uh, just a couple of miles away from the city of Antioch. They're coming down the river. Port city, Seleucia, they jump on a ship and they sail to an island called Cyprus. This is a large island in the Mediterranean Sea. And then verse 5 begins to describe. They begin their ministry there. They begin the first missionary journey on this island. And what happens is they land at the very eastern tip of the island in that first city called Salamis. And then the text tells us the next it closes that they work their way all the way over 100 miles to the other side of that island, the western tip, to the second city that we're told about, Paphos. So this covers the whole territory in between. The Holy Spirit is telling us that they went through the whole entire island preaching Jesus Christ. Think about that. Think about how that encouraging that would be. Send a church planning team and they can report back 
We just went through the entire island, 100 miles, and we're preaching the Lord Jesus from east coast to west coast. The Lord opened the door. Tremendous encouragement. And we're told their strategy in verse 5. What did they do as they're walking through these different cities and different villages? And this is encouragement to me. Verse 5 says they proclaimed the word of the Lord. That was the church planning strategy. Now, things unfortunately have gotten really complicated in a lot of different spheres of the American church and specifically um, uh, the seeker sensitive church. That if you really want to plant a church and you really want to see people respond, here's all the different types of things that you need to do. You need to have a rocking kids ministry. You need to have a uh, really uh, slick, cool uh, pastor. Sorry for that. Um, <laughs> Uh, you need to have a really comfortable place for people to sit and hear God's word. Not like these little plastic chairs that snap every once in a while. You need to make sure that uh, that temperature in that room is just right. You need to make sure that sermon doesn't run uh, too long. Because here's what you got to do if people are going to respond to the gospel. But look at the strategy. No church planning gurus yet in Acts 13. No, no, no uh, church growth specialist. What was their strategy? They show up on the island. They don't have any church planning manuals. They're not connected to any um, large evangelical groups. They don't know about the Gospel Coalition, Nine Marks. They don't know about Acts 29, the IMB, Pioneers Missions Organization. Two men step on the ground and all they have is the Word of God. And that was their strategy beginning to end. They walked through the whole island and they proclaimed the word of the Lord, the word of God. And then and then Luke, he zones in on on two of the things that began to happen as they're preaching God's word, as they're proclaiming the word of God among the unreached. And in verse six, we see that they come face to face with demonic resistance. In the form of a man who was a servant of Satan, filled and operating in demonic power. His name was Alamus Bar Jesus. Alamus Bar Jesus. Alamus, and that, that Bar Jesus means son of Jesus or son of salvation. Alamus Bar Jesus. He is said to be both a magician and a Jewish false prophet. And just in case, you know, we need a little wake-up reminder this morning, those two things don't go together, okay? Judaism and magic, those are opposite things, okay? They have no place together. One is the, the worship of the one true God. The other is the worship of demonic idols. And so what this man has done is he's taken false religion and attached it to the new and created a counterfeit religion. It's called syncretism. He's a Jewish false prophet. He's a magician. And there's real demonic power that this man is exercising. And specifically we're told that he's using that demonic power, that demonic influence to turn people away, specifically the proconsul from the faith. And so they come and they're preaching the word of God and this servant of Satan steps forward and he's intentionally, actively opposing the preaching of the gospel. Satan has resisted 
the mission of Jesus. We've seen this before in the book of Acts. We're going to see this again in the book of Acts. That as that gospel goes out to the nations, there is satanic opposition. And that's exactly what he shows us here. He shows us the servant of Satan versus the servant of Jesus. Or you could say it this way. The true prophet of God versus the false prophet of God. And so Paul says about him, remember his name means son of salvation. But look at what Paul says in verse 10. Paul looks at this man and he says, you're a son of the devil. You call yourself a son of Jesus and a son of salvation and servant of God. Here's what you really are. You're a son of the devil. The Greek word for false prophet in this text is literally pseudo prophet. You are a pretender. You are a fake. You are a child of Satan, a servant of the devil. Now, notice this, okay? Because we have, you know, some tendencies to, to be overcorrective in the way that we read the New Testament. And we tend to think, well, that doesn't sound very gentle. That doesn't sound very nice and very kind. But notice that he said this, and the text says, full of the spirit full of the spirit verse 10 he is pronouncing as a true prophet of god he is pronouncing a judgment on this false prophet and, and paul the true prophet of the lord he he announces that the hand of the lord has fallen upon you in judgment and as soon as these words come out of paul's mouth we're told that blindness strikes this man and that king jesus demonstrates his superior, his far superior power over Satan and demons. You have this man uh, opposing the gospel, turning people away from the faith, and then all of a sudden he's walking around like a helpless child, needing people to lead him by the hand. It's the power of God. Power of God. Not only that, the second thing that Luke zones in on, and I've read this story many times, okay, as I come through reading the book of Acts, and I've never quite seen it like this. Never quite seen it like this, but this is powerful. Tremendously encouraging. He, he zones in on one particular conversion that happens on the island of Cyprus. And he introduces us to a man named Sergius Paulus. And we're told that this man is the proconsul. And I think that's probably the reason why it never stuck out to me. That's somewhat of a cryptic word. Well, yeah, that, that, that sounds you know, cool. I'm not quite sure what that means, but he's the proconsul. And what that means, that this man is the Roman governor of Cyprus. This is the Roman governor of this province. Okay, This is the arm of Caesar on the island of Cyprus. This is the most powerful, the most influential man on this hundred mile island. And Satan's trying to turn him away from the gospel. And look at what the word of God is doing. Look at, look at how much power the gospel has. And Holy Scripture is telling us that the most powerful political figure in Cyprus believed the gospel. And isn't that a contrast? A glorious contrast to what we saw in the previous chapter of the book of Acts. You have this man named Herod in Acts 12. And he's killing apostles and, and trying to kill more apostles. And God judges him. Kills him in a moment. And then in the very next 
chapter, God demonstrates His power in a different way on rulers. Not only is He able to judge them in a moment, He's able to save them. He's able to pull them into the kingdom of God. And this man believed the gospel. Look at verse 12. Not just a little bit. He was astonished. Astonished. Think about how glorious this would be for a church planting team of Grace Community Church sent out in the name of Jesus, but not sent out alone. Sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we get a report back that the most powerful political leader in an area has heard the gospel, fallen under conviction, and believed. This is how powerful the word that we proclaim is. The power of the gospel of Jesus. Magic versus gospel, gospel wins. Roman governors versus gospel, gospel wins. Do you see a formula navigating in, in the book of Acts? And the word of the Lord increased and the word of the Lord multiplied. Nothing can stop the word of God, even Caesar, on the island of Cyprus. And the lesson for us is really simple. Wake up, brothers and sisters. Wake up to the reality of spiritual power. These are not just ideas. Satan and his kingdom and Jesus and his kingdom. They're not just vague ideas bouncing around in our minds. They're reality. We need to wake up to re real spiritual power. And one of the ways that this applies to us is as we send out church planning teams uh, from Grace Community Church, it's possible for us to have glorified expectations of the mission field. That's a real possibility that we paint things prettier and in a different light than what God's word does. And one of the realities that we are to expect as men and women take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the unreached, as they go down into the land of deep darkness, they're entering into Satan's realm, Satan's dominion. And every time and always, in lots of different ways, they will be oppressed. They will be resisted. And we need to be aware of that. Reality of spiritual power helps us not to have glorified expectations of the mission field. Missions is hard. It doesn't feel like every day is a Friday on the mission field. Okay, Preaching Jesus among the unreached. And if that's something that's hard for you, you know, well, how could it, how could it not be awesome preaching Jesus among the unreached? It is awesome. But if you don't think it's hard, talk to a few of our missionaries that have been sent out for Grace, from Grace Community Church that are on the field and the honeymoon stage is over and the labor begins for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask them if it's hard. Ask them if they're resisted every single time. The answer is yes. They're going into Satan's realm, plundering Satan's kingdom with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're not supposed to fear that. The reality of Satan and demons and being opposed and resisted. We don't run from that. We're not cowards. Why? Well, these men are sent out, but they're not sent out by themselves. And this is something that we see repeatedly happen in the book of Acts. They're sent out in the spirit. The third person of the Trinity not only indwells them, but also empowers this mission. The Holy Spirit is with them. The hand of the Lord is with them. The power of God is at work in this world through this missions thing. And that causes us not to fear at all. First John chapter four, verse four says this little children. 
You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We can trust God for that. For superior power to be manifested through servants of Jesus Christ. We can trust God for that. Whether that power comes in the form of a judgment or in the form of a conversion. God will stand behind the preaching of his word. Yes, he will. We can trust him for that. We do not go out for Jesus alone. We go out in the spirit. We'll close this morning and we'll, we'll finish here. And the best way I can describe this is I want to give, give us a glimpse of fasting that shook the nation. And there's something significant that happens in Acts 13 and Acts 14. But Luke puts his finger on the very beginning and the origin of this movement started prayer and fasting. And so we want to zone in and we want to learn from God's word, from the Holy Spirit, what he would have us as a local church, what he would have us to do in response to this passage. How would he have us to live? I do want to talk a little bit about fasting. I've found uh, that that's something that can be... Um, Many people can be confused about, less than clear about. Uh, there's just a, typically a lot more questions about fasting than maybe any other spiritual discipline. So I want to say just a few generic things about fasting. Number one is it is prescribed by Scripture. Okay, It is not just a good idea. This is how people have sought the Lord. Servants of God have sought the Lord. This is a God-ordained spiritual discipline. And it's a God-ordained way to express a burden that you have to the Lord. Fasting from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Now here's one of the things that I think is maybe, maybe even at the top of the list of what's misunderstood about fasting. It is not an end in itself. Okay? It is never meant to be by itself. And that's something that can throw you off. Like, okay, fasting, don't eat, got it. Be hungry for, for the Lord. And, and okay, it's, it's hard, got it. Um, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, just be hungry for the Lord, okay? And that's a misunderstanding. It's not an end in itself. It's not a be hungry for the Lord end of sentence, Okay? It goes with always other spiritual disciplines. It's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It never happens alone. So you can say it this way. A Christian engages in the negative spiritual discipline of fasting in order to give themselves more fully to the positive spiritual discipline of intercession. Intercession. It's fasting and prayer. It's not go hungry for the Lord. It's give yourself more fully to intercession. Give that burden in a more specific way to the Lord God. It's not just have, have hunger pains and be hungry. It's express a superior hunger to God. Take that burden to God through prayer, uh, through fasting, express through prayer. Again, this is God-ordained way to take that burden that we have and that hunger that we have and to express it in a more earnest way to the Lord. And periodically, Jesus says we should do this. Uh, he says that when he goes, his disciples will fast. In the same way that he says when they pray, 
and when they give. That's the language of the Sermon on the Mount. It is assumed and presupposed that this will be something that you engage in as a follower of Jesus Christ. Not just going hungry, but giving yourself more fully to prayer. Okay? Now look at verse 2. We have those, those phrases. Worshiping the Lord and fasting. And let me say this. They were doing that. Verse 2. And it's not exactly clear who the they is that's worshiping the Lord and fasting. It's ambiguous in the Greek text. It's, uh, it's not exactly clear. It could be the leadership in the church of Antioch. could be that. It could also be the entire congregation of the church of Antioch. And I don't think we know with certainty. Nevertheless, a group of people in Antioch, whether it's the leaders or the congregation, they're worshiping and fasting. They have entered into a season of worshiping and fasting. And I think a better translation to that word worshiping is serving. You'll find it translated that way several times in the New Testament. Serving the Lord and fasting or serving the Lord with fasting. Your translation may even say that. Now, when you fast, there's always a reason for it. Okay? It's not, oh, I haven't done this in a while and I need to do this. It's having a burden and in a more earnest and intentional way carrying that burden to God. So the question is, what was their burden? Why the fast? They're not on a hunger strike. They're not going hungry for Jesus. What are they praying about? What are they asking God to do? What burden are they expressing and asking the Lord to move upon? And the way that I read this text, and you'll have to, you'll have to decide for yourself, is the, the context and the way this thing moves is the burden that this group had is directly related to the Great Commission. They got a burden for the nation. They know the great commission of Jesus Christ that the ascended Lord has told them to go make disciples of all nations. They also have some indication that the nations around them are in complete darkness and they have a burden. They have a burden for the great commission. They have a burden for the nations. They know the gospel. They know their mission. They know the need is great, but they don't know exactly what to do next. What do they do? They enter into a season of, in, uh, of intentional fasting and bringing this burden before the Lord. And we are told that the Holy Spirit responded to them, that he answered them, that he gave the guidance that they were seeking. The Spirit gave it and he brought clarity into exactly how this local church would obey the great commission of Jesus Christ. And so the thing that I want us to get is the heart behind this fast is directly related to the Great Commission. And it's basically saying this. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Here we are, Lord. Send us. And I want us to get a real vivid picture of that. Of a hungry group of disciples of Jesus wanting to be used by Jesus Christ. And so they take that burden to the Lord and they say, here I am, Lord, send me. What would you have me to do? Where would you have me to go? I want you to turn really quickly to Joshua chapter one. And I think this is the same heart that we're seeing expressed in Acts 13. It's the same heart that we read about in Joshua's generation. Joshua chapter 1, 
verse 16, we read, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you to write this verse like a banner over your life. No strings attached. Whatever you command me, I will do it, Lord Jesus. And wherever you send me, I will go. Wherever you send me, I will go. You are the sovereign Lord and I am your servant. You have absolute and total claim upon me. Wherever you send me, I will go. And I encourage you to write that over your entire life. When you think about your life goals and the things that you want to accomplish, you need to be really, really careful that you're not getting too comfortable and having your life all planned out. Why? Because wherever he sends you, you will go. Wherever he sends you, you will go. Whatever he commands you, you will do. You need to write this over your vocation. You need to write this over your vocation, the things that you do. That wherever Jesus sends you to do that vocation, you will do it. Brothers and sisters, you need to write this over your marriage. That, that's a beautiful thing when a husband and a wife are serving Jesus together. And that's the heartbeat. Wherever Jesus sends this family, that's where we're going. Whatever Jesus commands this family, that's what we're doing. You need to write this as a banner over your children. Over your children. In the same way we can be tempted to plan out our own lives, micromanage our own lives, we can do that same thing with our children. We have all these plans and things that we want our children to accomplish, but this is the banner written over all of it. Wherever Jesus sends them, they will go. And that ought to be our heart. We're told that, we, that, that, that these children that God has given us are, are like... Uh, arrows in the hand of a warrior and our prayer is that Lord Jesus let them go speak to the enemy in the gates and what a better way to do that than preaching Jesus Christ among the unreached that's the heart Lord Jesus launch out these little ones and let them speak with the enemy in the gate wherever you send us we will go so this is the season this is what they're bringing before the Lord with fasting with burden. To be used by Jesus Christ. To be used by God. And I think the encouragement for us as we close this morning is, is, is this is an encouragement for us. Because this is showing us just a little glimpse of what God can do in one local church. In one local church. So you have the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And then listen, 150 years later. Because of that one spark and the fire that exploded from that one spark, 150 years later in the Roman Empire, there's a church of Jesus in every major city, even as far as London, England. This is the explosive power of the mission of Jesus Christ. And 100 years after that, the, the emperor of the entire empire bows the knee, at least in word, bows the knee to Jesus Christ. And this was the spark that started it all. One local church, Antioch. Does that not encourage us with what God could do with this local church if His hand were to fall upon us? If His Holy Spirit were to lead us? And so I want to encourage you to ask God personally and for this church that God would use us. 
that God would use us for his glory among the nations. And I want this to get really specific. Okay, I want to encourage us to ask the Lord to be used in a disproportionate way, in a disproportionate way. I want to talk to you about that for just a moment. Our God has a record of taking things that are small in number and insignificant in resources and using those things to accomplish his purpose. And because he's made a name for himself of doing that, this local church is a candidate. Small in number and insignificant in resources. And if God has made a name for himself using that kind of thing to accomplish his purpose, we're sitting in a good place. And I want to encourage you with that. Remember, remember what the Lord did with Gideon's army. Anybody remember that? In Judges 7. Remember that man named Gideon? We have uh, Israel is sub, uh, in subjugation and the Midianites are, are in Israel, ruling over Israel. And God raises up a man named Gideon. And before long, an army begins to gather around Gideon, the servant of the Lord, called of God. And in, in Judges chapter 7, we're told that that army grows to a number, listen closely, of 32,000 men in Israel. And they are about to go to war with a far superior force, with far superior numbers in the Midianites. So you got 32,000 is about to go do battle with a lot more thousand. And then right before that happens, the Lord sends a word and he says, stop. And you know what he tells Gideon? He says, you got too many people. If you know anything about military history um, or military strategy, that's odd. Okay. Uh, typically, here's the way it works. Too many people, not a problem. Okay. Too few people is when, when we got the problem. But this is exactly what God says in Judges 7. He says, too many. And then he says this. If you go with that many people, you're going to be tempted to take glory from this victory. You're going to boast over me and you're going to say, my own hand did this. And so what happens is the Lord takes... 32,000, listen, and he whittles it all the way down to 300 men. And Judges 7 tells us that 300 men go to war against thousands of Midianites and they rout them in the name of the Lord. And then everybody who looks on to that playing out, what's the takeaway from that? Man, the hand of the Lord did that. Those, those results are so disproportionate that the only explanation is the Holy Spirit did that. The Holy Spirit did that. This is God's reputation. This is what he does. Same thing that Jesus did and, and when he stood before the 5,000. You remember this? In John chapter 6, thousands of people began to gather around Jesus. And Jesus turns to his apostles. And you know what he says? He says, you give them something to eat. And they did the same thing that you would do. They, they're looking out and they, they say, okay, 5,000, 12 of us. Uh, how, how do we do that? Where, where are we to buy something to eat? And how would we go about buying that? How in the world would you expect us to give them something to eat? And nevertheless, that's exactly what Jesus commands them to do. Now, is that not similar to these great commission needs? What in the world could we do? How, given our smallness in number and our tiny little resources, what in the world could we do? It's like telling somebody to drink the ocean. 
You give them something to eat. You go, you go uh, 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 knock a dent in, in this great commission. But Jesus told them that. And they're sitting there in unbelief and they're going back and forth and saying, we can't, we can't do this. And then John 6 tells us one little boy steps forward and he's got a sack lunch. He's got a sack lunch with him. He's got five pieces of bread and he's got two sardines. And this little childlike faith, Jesus says, you get them, give them something to eat. 5,000 people sitting out in front of him. And the little boy says, here's my sack lunch, Jesus. And he gives his little insignificant resources. And then what happens in that story? He delivers them into the hands of Christ. And what does Jesus do? Jesus begins to multiply the bread. And in the hands of Christ, that little bit becomes a lot. And it becomes so much that we're told that 5,000 people leave that meeting full with a full belly. They're not hungry anymore. They have eaten. And, and it all started with this little sack lunch of this one little boy. And that's, that's the, the, the message for us. And Jesus taught his disciples that message because they're all walking around picking up 12 full baskets of fragments of a little becomes a lot in the hand of Jesus. Do you see that? Same thing. That disproportionate blessing, that disproportionate effect. One sack lunch feeding 5,000. And my encouragement to us is just like we see in the church at Antioch, God can use this church like that. Little, small numbers, small, tiny, insignificant in resource. And we can have a massively disproportionate effect among the nations. God can use us to shape the nations for the glory of Christ. And we want to ask the Lord to do that. We want to enter into a season of asking the Lord to do that at Grace Community Church. And I want to lead us in prayer even now um, to ask for God's blessing to fall upon this church. In a more discernible way. Let's pray. Lord we come to you. And we want to worship you. God as the redeemer. Lord. And you tell us that you're in Christ. And you tell us exactly what you're doing. Right now you're reconciling the world. To yourself. And not only are you a righteous God. You have also made a name for yourself. As a savior. And you're not willing that any perish. But that all come to repentance and Lord we come before you today as a local church and we ask for your heart Lord God would you be pleased to give your heart for the nations to us in a more discernible way God God would you be pleased to do that Lord to give us more brokenness for the unreached peoples of the earth God I pray for those among us whom you are calling and whom you soon will call. Lord, we pray that you would make them inc more increasingly uncomfortable in this season of their life, Lord. God, pull all the layers away from the things of the world that would choke out your mission in their life. Lord, give us a burden. Make us a hungry people to see Christ exalted among the nations. And Lord, we ask for your blessing. And we ask you to search us, Lord, not for the praise of our own name, but for your own glory. God, bless us. Bless us, Lord. Let the nations be glad from the work that you're doing at Grace Community Church. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.